This, mor- uh, this morning's Bible reading is from James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteous, and he was called by God's friend, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Amen. Good morning. Uh, It's good to be here this morning. Uh, I'll just fix that while you're watching me fix that. Okay, let's pray and then we'll get into God's Word. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much um, that you are a good and kind God to us. Um, As Angus prayed before, thanks God that you showed us love when we didn't deserve it. And one of those ways that we see that is by the fact that we can meet together and encourage one another each week. Uh, We pray this morning that you would challenge us. We pray that you would um, move in us so that uh, as we leave today, we would be different people than the ones as we walked in. Uh, We pray that you would do this work on us, in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What does an authentic Christian look like? I don't know what characteristics come to your mind. Maybe you have people. Maybe there's a person in your life that you think of when you think of an authentic Christian. But I want you to think about this. What does an authentic Christian look like? This week, uh, I came across something that I think tells us completely what an authentic Christian looks like. It gives us all the things we need to look out for. And it was online in one of those starter kits. So I don't know if you've seen those starter kits, but basically what they are is uh, the, the kind of key ingredients you need to be a part of any sort of group or fan club or basically anything. So say, for example, uh, if you wanted a kind of cricket supporters starter kit, you'd have like a Hawaiian shirt, right? That's the kind of thing that you need to be a cricket supporter. If you're a musician, you need an instrument, right? And, and the whole idea of these things is to show us what these, you know, what it means to be a part of this group. And so I found uh, what it means to be a real Christian, a starter kit, to show us exactly what an authentic Christian looks like, and here it is. The seven things you need to be an authentic Christian, without which you're not an authentic Christian. So the first one is a Newsboys CD. We'll start at the top left. If you have a Newsboys CD, you are an authentic Christian. Now, at this point, I think we'd also take Reliant K or Switchfoot, basically anyone that your non-Christian friends have never heard of. You need a Christian band from the 90s. You need one of their CDs. 
The next one is a fish on your car. Bonus points here if you have the cross in it, right? But we'll take the fish without the cross as well. That, that goes all right. Uh, obviously, you need a Bible. If it's leather, that's better. If it has Jesus writing in red, of course, that's better. You need one of them. Then you need a gold chain around your neck with a cross in it. Uh, I think the way they sell this to us is the heavier it is, the more gold in it, the more expensive it is, the more holy you are. So, of course, you need one of them. Uh, The fifth thing uh, from last week's talk, as Ross told us, you need a Tim Keller book, at least one Tim Keller book on your bookshelf. The sixth one, and I think this is probably the most important one of the whole lot, you need a button-up shirt, a short sleeve, and the bonus points come for this one if the shirt matches the colour of your church's auditorium walls. <laughs> so this morning I thought, you know what, let's make sure that I am authentic in this. And the final one, the final one, of course, is a healthy coffee addiction, right? Every good Christian, every authentic Christian has a good, healthy coffee addiction. It says there, first I drink coffee, then I do things. Yes and amen to that, right? In fact, I'm shaking because I haven't had my third coffee for the morning. This is what makes an authentic Christian, right? Now, hopefully you can tell that these things are made so that we can laugh at ourselves. Hopefully you can see that these things are made so that we can laugh at ourselves and and some of our close friends who we want to pay out. We, We should all see that at this point, this is not a checklist for what an authentic Christian really is. You don't need all those seven things to be an authentic Christian. I I do guarantee you this morning, if you don't have a Newsboys CD, you can be an authentic Christian. So it raises the question for us, what then is an authentic Christian? Or what does an authentic Christian genuinely look like? What does someone look like who, who is authentic in their faith, who genuinely gets it? What does that look like for someone to be like that? Well, well, as we open up the Bible again this morning, as we look at James, what we're going to see is that James addresses this. He speaks into this and he wants us to see what an authentic Christian is, what someone who genuinely gets it really looks like. And we pick it up from where James finished last week in James chapter 2, verse 14. This is what he says. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? We're asking, what's an authentic Christian? And here James speaks into this space. Now, now the first thing we have to recognize is that he's speaking to brothers and sisters. James is writing to the church that's dispersed around the place. They're people who get who Jesus is. He's writing to these people and he says to them, uh, what good is it if someone has faith but doesn't have deeds? What good is it if someone has a knowledge about God, a theology of who God is, but doesn't have actions? Right? Or to, to put it another way, is it simply enough to know about God? Is it simply enough to know who God is? Now, now I don't know what your gut reaction there is this morning. If, if uh, James asks you that question, is faith enough? Right? Is faith enough? What good is it if someone just has faith and not deeds? Or if we think about this practically for a moment, let's pretend someone after the service comes up to you and asks you, and they're asking you because you have a blue button-up t-shirt, how do I be saved? Right? They've come to you for a clear reason. What are you responding to that person? If someone says, how do, how do I be saved? What's your go-to there? 
He's saying something like, um, okay, so this is what you need to do. You need to believe that Jesus uh, entered into the world to die on the cross for sinners. And sin is, uh, it's not just the good things we don't do that God calls us to. It's the bad things we do. But ultimately, it's this like rejection of God. It's where I don't trust God. And so you, you need to believe that Jesus died on the cross. And then he died to take our place for sin. And then he rose again and defeated sin and defeated death and just believe in him. Is that what you're saying? Now, now don't hear me wrong here. I'm not saying that that's a bad place to start. In fact, I'd I'd actually argue that's one of the better places to start. But what James is getting at here is if we stop there, we're missing something. If we stop there with simply knowledge, with simply belief, we're missing something. And he illustrates this point. And he goes to verse 15 and 16 to do this. He shows us this real-life illustration. So he says, right, pretend for a moment that you're coming home from work. And on your way home from work to the car or to the bus, you, you, you've uh, come across this brother or sister who's homeless. It needs to be winter for this illustration to work because summer, it doesn't, they're not going to get cold. But it's winter, they're cold, they're hungry. And you walk past this brother and sister or sister and you say to them, I wish you well, all the best. I hope you sleep well tonight, right? I hope you're warm. I hope you're well fed. And then you continue walking in the, or the direction that you were going. James says, what good is that? And now we can all see that picture, can't we? In that moment, what good is it if someone says they care for the, for the poor and, doesn't, and don't put that into action? Right? James is actually saying, if that happens, your faith is dead. Your words are meaningless. Right? He's telling us talk is cheap. That's what we know, right? Talk is cheap without actions. If you say you care for the poor and then you don't do anything to help the poor, James is saying you don't actually care for the poor. Right? That's how his logic works here. Now, this is going to pick on a theme that we're going to see throughout this passage. We're saved by faith alone, but a saving faith is never alone. That's going to come up again and again in this passage. If you say you believe something and your actions don't back it up, there's actually something wrong with what you say you believe. So in the same vein as James's illustration, it's kind of like this. A few years ago, I went over to Perth. Uh, with one of my brothers, and we went over to Perth, and we have an uncle who lives kind of an hour north of Perth. The, the big news was he got this new boat, and he was going to take us out on this boat. Now, you know how these things work. Uh, we've got like three days that he can fit us in. He's busy, so it's kind of, it ends up just being, you know, one, uh, one day that we can kind of make it work. Now, on this day, it just so happened that the wind was crazy, the swell was crazy, Pretty much anyone in their right mind wouldn't have gone out on the water. But we did because we wanted to go on the boat. Now, on top of this, not only was the swell ridiculous and the wind crazy, on top of this, we all know what the media says about Western Australia water. There is a shark within 10 meters, wherever you are in that water. So here we are on this boat, about 3 k's offshore, the, the, the boat is rocking like crazy. Uh, my brother, who's a little, bit, a little bit more of a hypochondriac than I am, uh, genuinely thought that we were going to die. I wasn't quite at that stage, but he thought, this is it. I didn't think I was going out like this, but, but we are. This is it. We went out to collect crab pots. Couldn't even get the crab pots. We couldn't even get to the boy to pick it up. Now, it was uh, one of those moments that you just don't want to be caught in. Uh, so eventually, you know, well, not eventually, pretty quickly, we got out there, realized we couldn't do this, and 
as quickly as we could got back to safety and got back to shore. Now, we made it. We, we lived to tell the story. But for a moment uh, out there, we, we genuinely thought that we were going to tip, that the whole thing was just going to fall over. And, and, and imagine for me, uh, with me uh, for a moment that that boat did flip over and that we're stuck in that water doing all that we can to stay above the water. Now, uh, you know the situation. I mean, we can't see shore. We're not making it back. This is game over if that thing tips over, right? And so we're sitting there trying to keep our legs above the water. Now, there's no boats around. <laughs> no one in their right mind goes out on days like this. So, so we're sitting there, if this thing did tip, floating in the water, doing everything we can to stay above the water. Now, let's pretend for a moment that a boat did come. Somehow, miraculously, a boat came and saw us floating in the water, doing everything that we can, struggling to keep our head above the water. And the boat drove up to us, and the skipper looked out to us, and he said these words, We really hope you don't drown. We hope that you don't drown. In fact, we've been praying for you that you don't drown. We hope that you can get back to shore safely. We hope that you sleep well tonight and maybe have a good feed. And then he drives off. That's crazy, right? If that would happen. Not only is it crazy, his words are meaningless in that point. But on top of his words being meaningless, I mean, that's hurtful. <laughs> that's game over there in that moment. But this is what James is getting at. This is the picture that he's getting at here. He's saying if you care for someone who's drowning, if you say you care for someone who's drowning and you don't do anything about it, you don't really care that they're drowning. If you say that you care for the poor and you don't really do anything to show that you care for the poor, you don't really care for the poor. And if you say that you trust in Jesus, if you say that you, you believe him and that he's good, that you love him and that you recognize, man, he's, he's so good and that his word is good, and that it doesn't flow into your life, James says, is that really a true faith? In fact, he says in verse 17 there, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. It's no faith at all. And so he picks up on this idea again. We're saved by faith alone, but a saving faith is never alone. Genuine trust in Jesus always results in action. And so we can see James starting to put this picture for us, can't we, of what an authentic Christian is. Someone who believes and trusts that God is good and lives that out. Now, now, I feel like something strange happens when we wrestle with passages like this. I mean, James is almost overwhelmingly simple in his words here. And I don't know if you've ever been in this situation, but across the years, uh, been in, in times and moments where we start speaking about faith and works, whether it's in growth group or just with people as we're wrestling, okay, what does this mean? And, and the conversation starts to get heated. Right? I don't know if you've ever been there. I feel like if you've been in a Bible study or a growth group for more than five minutes, this conversation comes up. And, and what happened, at least in the conversations that I had, is we start talking about, okay, so, so what does it mean for faith and works? How do we understand this? And eventually, in that conversation, it gets to the point where we're starting to split faith and works to become two distinctive things. We start to split faith and works into two separate ideas. But the problem when we do that is we're starting to split something that was never meant to be split. Faith and works is like two sides of the one coin. 
it might be helpful to identify what, sides is, what side is heads and what side is tails. I don't know what situation you'd find yourself in to discuss the differences between the two, but you might do that. But at no point do you actually split the two. And as we think about faith and works, it's really crucial that we don't split these two ideas. See, James speaks up and he says in verse 18, he says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Right? Someone might say, let's split the two. You have faith, I have works. You have theology, you have a knowledge of God, I have hospitality. You have reading, I have encouragement. You, you have uh, preaching and teaching, I have just walking side by side, making meals for people, helping people out in this. You have faith, I have deeds. But James goes on in verse 18. He says, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good, even the demons believe that and shudder. See what James is saying here? He's saying, my deeds reflect what's going on in my heart. We're saved by faith alone, but a saving faith is never alone. A genuine trust in Jesus always results in action. And James says that. He says, my life reflects what I believe. And so he, he goes at this thing. He says, man, you can't split faith and actions here. And he points us to the demons to prove this point. It's not regularly that you learn a lesson from the demons, but James wants us to learn one. And he says this, he says, you believe that there is one God, good, the demons get that. Now, now, James is doing something interesting here. He's actually taking this line from this Jewish prayer called the Shema. And these, the Jews, what they would do is they'd recite this prayer over and over again because their thinking was, if we can get this prayer down pat, this prayer that begins with the Lord is one, if we get this prayer down pat, then we've got it. Right? Then, then we'll have it, we'll be authentic. James says... You believe there's one God, even the demons get that. Even the demons get that there's one God. Now, now can you see what he's saying here? The demons know who God is. The demons know about God. The demons know who God is capable of, what God is capable of. And see, so, so just some background. Um, throughout the Bible, God made, or not throughout the Bible, the Bible tells us that God made angels to enjoy God and see God and enjoy Him and praise Him and, and be in His presence. But some of those angels wanted to be higher than God. Their selfishness kicked in and they walked away from God. We describe it as kind of falling away from God. And these are what we know as demons. Right? A, a, demons are what we would call fallen angels. Right? So, so when we think about that, demons knew who God was. Right? Just, just soak that in for a moment. Demons know who God is. They got to see God. They got to see Him in His glory. They got to see Him in His power. They got to see what He was capable of. They may have even seen Him form this world that we're so in awe of. The demons saw God. And yet they're not authentic. Why? Because knowledge is not enough to save. Knowledge has never been enough to save. You can know about God and you can miss the point altogether. And for some of us here this morning, we need to feel the challenge here that James is giving us. You can go to church your whole life. You can go to growth group, you can do youth, you can do everything that you need to, 
and yet still miss the point. For some of us, that's been our story, where we can't even remember the last time we didn't think about going to church on a Sunday. And yet James is saying here, we need to be careful, we need to hear this warning here, knowledge isn't enough. Now you don't have to look too far to hear stories about people who went to church for a long time and never really understood it. And this was actually my story. I went to church, a church like this, for 18 years, where I was taught about the truth of God. I grew up in a home for 18 years where Jesus was taught and modeled and encouraged. For 18 years of my life, people around me from church and places around spoke into my life about who God was and what God has done. So I had knowledge. In fact, I'd get into arguments, all the arguments that I could. I'd get into fights with people at school about God and even teachers about God and all this stuff. I had knowledge, but I wasn't a Christian. Why? Because knowledge isn't enough. Knowledge isn't enough to save. That's what James is saying here. The demons knew who God was. The demons got that. Knowledge isn't enough to save. So what is? If knowledge can't save us, then what does save us? Well, James goes on and he points us to two more people. He gives us examples of authentic people and he shows us what is enough to save. The first person is Abraham. We see it from verse 20. He says, you foolish person. You can see the frustration in his voice, can't you? You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. James is saying once again for us, we're saved by faith alone, but a saving faith is never alone. It's always genuine trust always results in action. So we're saved by our trust in Jesus. We're saved by our faith that Jesus died for us and loves us and that he's for our good. But a saving faith is never alone. It always results in actions. And so James says, check Abraham out. Look at Abraham. See how he showed us this. Now, Abraham uh, is just this, he's a guy in the Old Testament. Um, And uh, early in the Old Testament, you find out about his story basically from Genesis 11, 12 onwards. If you don't know the story, though, Abraham uh, and his wife had struggles with having a family. They had felt the pain of infertility. And God made some promises to Abraham, and one of those promises was that he would have a family. Right? So you can see, I mean, for Abraham, if you felt this pain and can't have a family, moves to this joy of going, okay, so God's promising me this. And then he gets news that his wife is pregnant at a crazy old age, and they have this son called Isaac. So he feels the pain of infertility, and then the joy of having a family. And so now he has this son that he can influence and build up and grow and help and teach and help foster. He has this son, his heart, his pride, his joy here. But as Isaac grows up, God tests him. 
And God says of his only son, Abraham, sacrifice your son Isaac. His pride, his joy, his family. And we feel that. Even if we don't have kids here, we feel the weight of what God is asking there, right? What do you do in that moment? What did Abraham do? He, he trusted God. He trusted that God was for his good. And he trusted that somehow, because God was good, would provide another way. And so he trusted God in taking his only son, Isaac, up that mountain. And he trusted God, even as he lifted that knife, he trusted that God would provide another sacrifice. And God did. This lamb appeared, and that was the sacrifice that could take his place. See what James is saying here? Faith and works are moving together. They're not split here. He trusted God, and it overflowed in his life. We're saved by faith alone, but a saving faith is never alone. Genuine trust in God always results in action, and specifically for Abraham, it could have cost him his son's life. Then James points us to Rahab. Right now, Rahab's story is just one of the craziest stories, I think, in the Bible. In Joshua chapter 2, it's worthwhile reading it at some point because it's just this unbelievable story. So uh, in chapter 2 of Joshua, what we see is that uh, Israel, God's people, send two spies into this land that they're about to go into. And now already, as we're reading that, alarm bells should go off. God's promised them this land. Why are they now sending spies to go in this land? Then the spies, to make the whole thing worse, find themselves, just happen upon a prostitute's house. That doesn't read well, does it? That doesn't sound well that two of God's people are in a foreign land and they just find themselves in a prostitute's house. Now, the, the land, uh, the people of the land find out that these spies have come in to, to check out their land because ultimately they're going to take the land. And what does an angry mob do in the Old Testament when they want to find out about spies and deal with them? They want to kill them, right? I mean, that's the obvious answer there. This is Old Testament times. This isn't just some you know, petition in the middle of the city today. No, this is like, give us the spies so we can kill them. There's a lot on the line here. And, and if Rahab lies about what happens, if she's going to say that, no, the spies aren't here in this house, well, then her neck's on the line as well. So, so this angry mob searching for blood, wanting blood, come to, Abraham, come to sorry, Rahab's house and say, are the spies here? Now, again, in this situation, what do you do? What do you do? <laughs> to be honest, if it's me, I'm saying these two foreign spies that happened upon a prostitute's house are upstairs. Go and you know, get them and deal with them. But Rahab doesn't do that. She sends the angry mob in a different direction, in, in one direction, and the spies in a different direction safely. She put her neck on the line for them. Why? Well, like Abraham before her, she trusted God. She knew about God. See, she knew about God. She had heard about God. She heard about the stories of God, how, how God's people had taken land after land that God, they seemed to have no right to do, and yet God was with them. She knew about God, but she also trusted God and trusted that God was good. And so she put her neck on the line in the face of an angry mob trusting God. We're saved by faith alone, but a saving faith is never alone. Genuine trust in God always results in action. 
specifically for Rahab when it could have cost her her own life. You see what Abraham's saying? It's, it's so simple and so clear, isn't it? We're saved by faith alone, but a saving faith is never alone. And that's what he's saying. We're saved by our trust in Jesus, but if we trust in Jesus, our actions will reflect that fact. In fact, he finishes there in verse 26 by saying this, So faith without deeds is dead. Faith without deeds is no faith at all. This is a, a really challenging passage, isn't it? And it's kind of overwhelmingly simple here. James hits one idea over and over and over again. And like James, we'll say it again, we're saved by faith alone, but a saving faith is never alone. Now, now the question is, in light of this simple yet challenging passage, what do we do with this? What, what do we do with this? What does it mean for us as we leave this place today? Well, firstly, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we hope you can see what an authentic Christian really is. An authentic Christian isn't someone who simply says they believe in God, but someone who lives that out as well. It's someone who trusts in God, trusts in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, trusts in Him to conquer death, trusts in God, but lives that out as well. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, we hope you can see that clearly. Talk is cheap. Right? Talk is cheap, and I'm sure you've seen people who weren't genuinely Christians but talked it up. Authentic faith means we trust in Jesus and we live it out. And if you're here today and, and, and the story of the Bible isn't your story, then we'd love to help you out, fig, figure out what that means for you. In fact, we've been praying that, you would, that the story of the Bible would be your story as well. We prayed that this morning as we met together and prayed before the service. We pray that the story of the Bible would be your story. And if that's you here today, if you're not a Christian, please make sure you speak to us. Let us help you. Find anyone in the cube that's wearing a blue button-up. No, they don't need a button-up t-shirt. But head over to the info desk. We'd love to figure out and, and walk with you what this means for you to, to make the story of the Bible your story. But if you are here today and you are a Christian, what does this mean for us? What does this overwhelmingly challenging passage mean for us? Well, I think there's three things that we need to really grasp and hold on to as we move out of this passage. There's three things here that we can't let go of as we think about what we do with the passage. The first is this. The first is if we're feeling like at the end of this passage that we're simply not good enough and that we simply need to do more, then what we've done in that moment is we've split faith and works. So the first thing we need to grasp and recognize is that we can't split faith and works. They're two sides of the one coin. We can't split these things. And if we recognize here that there's something wrong with our actions, then we need to run back to Jesus and confess that and ask for his help to make sure that our life is authentic and that we're living out both a faithful life that results in actions. Right? So that's the first thing. Don't split faith and works. We can't split faith and works. The second thing for us that this means too is, and I hope you've seen this through this passage, is that our actions are a diagnostic of what's going on in our heart. Right? We can see that, can't we, through the illustrations that James uses. Our actions are a diagnostic of what's going on inwardly. And so we need to spend some time thinking about this. And I think there's three areas that is worthwhile thinking about with our time, our talents, and our treasures. 
So, so firstly, with our time, let's think about how our, we spend our time, what our actions say about us. So, so in the last week, or if you want to go more broadly, let's go since the start of 2018. How have you spent your time? Most days, what do you spend your time doing? And if it's work or kids or whatever, that's good. What about our free time? How are we spending our free time? And then thinking about this question, what does that say about our heart? Because how we spend our time shows us deeply what we value and who we trust. And if our time doesn't say that we value and trust God, there's actually something wrong inwardly. You see how it works. What about with people when it comes to people? How are we spending time with God's people? Are we encouraging and building up God's people? Are we fighting to meet with God's people? Are we fighting to get to growth group, to get to church? Are we fighting to give people those phone calls to encourage them and pray for them? Are we spending time praying for God's people? You see, if we're not, it's actually showing us something about our heart. And what about for those in our lives who aren't Christians? Do we spend time making sure that our paths cross? Do we spend time intentionally hanging out with our non-Christian friends? Do we spend time actively praying for our non-Christian friends, family? Do we spend time boldly speaking about Jesus? Because you can see, if we're not doing that, if our actions don't reflect that, it actually says something about our heart. It's like driving up to a drowning person and wishing them well and driving in the other direction. You see how much this matters? You see how profound James's words are? So, so that's the first way we need to think about this. With our time, how we spend our time gives us a diagnostic on what we truly believe and what we truly value. What about with your talents? With what gifts God has given us? See, Romans 12 speaks about how we here today are one body and we all have unique and individual gifts to bring to the table for the building up of each other. Does how you use your gifts reflect that you believe God at his word? That you are important to our church? That your gifts are valued here? And that you are needed here for the building up of God's people? Are you using the gifts that God has given you? Because if our actions, if we're not using our gifts, it's actually a reflection of our heart that maybe we don't believe that we're as valuable as God says we are. Or maybe we don't need to do that. Our actions give us a reflection of our heart with how we use our talents, our gifts. And then finally with our treasures. How are we spending our money? If you looked at how you've spent your money so far this year, what does it say about what you believe? And not compared to anyone else. For you, individually, or as a family, what does your finances say about what you believe? Could you really look at your finances and say that you believe Jesus at his word in Matthew where he said, don't store yourself up treasures on earth. Instead, store them in heaven. Does our giving reflect that we believe that Jesus is true and right when he says that? Because if our giving, if our money doesn't reflect that, there's actually something wrong with our hearts. Something inwardly that says maybe we don't believe Jesus at his word. 
Can you see what James is saying here? Our actions are a diagnostic of our heart. So, so the first thing is we, we can't disconnect faith and works. We can't. We need that those two things go together. The second, our actions are, are, are diagnostic of what's going on inwardly within us. And the third thing that we need to grasp and the third thing that we need to hold on to is that the God that tells us faith without actions is dead is the God that perfectly modeled what authentic faith really looks like. You see, when we look to Jesus we see that he did this so perfectly and so beautifully well. See, Jesus, unlike the hypocrite who just wished the poor well, Jesus saw us in our spiritual poverty. And although he was rich, gave that all up and came to earth. He did something about that to clothe the naked and give food to the hungry and give drink to the thirsty. Jesus showed us what it looked like to put faith in action. Jesus, like Abraham, trusted that God was good. But unlike in Abraham, knew that a sacrifice wasn't coming, that he was the sacrifice. Jesus went to the cross knowing that he was the perfect son who would die on the cross. Jesus, like in Rahab, trusted that God was good. And when an angry mob came looking for blood, he trusted God and he surrendered himself to the angry mob. He went to the cross. He died. He showed us what authenticity looked like. looks like. It trusts the Father. It trusts that he's good. And it lives that out. James says to us, faith without deeds is dead, but God is not calling us to do anything he hasn't first done. Jesus says, follow me, live how I lived, trust me, believe me, and know that we're saved by faith alone, but genuine trust, a genuine faith, a saving faith is never alone. Let's run to Jesus. God, we come now to you recognizing the power and the weight of, of James's words this morning. God, we know that as sinful people, that it's bound to happen, that, that we do things that reflect inwardly that there's something off. But God, we trust you and we run to you knowing that you are the God of forgiveness. And we pray, Lord, that we would continue to run to you that we'd continue to run to our Savior and our King who perfectly modeled what faith looks like. And we'd continue to run to you and continue to trust you so that this trust isn't just something that we speak, but something we put in action. Help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.